Welcome to the James Quantall Show, the space where I interview the world's experts and share how you can live your life to the fullest, be present, and connect deeply with others and discover your unique calling. On today's episode, I had a chat with Bill Perkins, the author of the game-changing book, Die With Zero. This book and Bill's approach to life in general is a completely untraditional but refreshing and thought-provoking path for living a full and vibrant life. Bill has developed systems and mental models to get the most out of his short life on Earth and to live a life with little regrets. Please listen in and hear how many of the traditional ways of living may not be the most effective. So we stopped mid-sentence because Bill and I were already getting into such wisdom that would be valuable to everyone that we just kind of stopped. And we were chatting about examples of people who on the outside have what we would call success. They have money, they have status, they have careers, they have power maybe, but they're possibly squandering the ability to experience a full life or a well-rounded life. And so we kind of just hit record. Yeah. I mean, we were just talking about how people develop habits, right? You develop habits to get good, right? Like you play baseball, you develop a good swing, a good golf swing. In a job, you develop habits to be successful at whatever you do, whether you're uh, selling plastics or, or trading commodities or whatever it is you do in your field. And so those habits, you know, put you on autopilot of doing what you need to do, but they also put you in this default mode network of not living your full life, like why you went to go to work, like to have these experiences. And so you wind up wasting your life. And so like, I kind of slapped my friends around, like, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing here? Like you... You've won, like you did this, not to do this, but for these other goals and dreams and aspirations that you had, and you're kind of not paying attention to them, right? What does it take to wake them up? I I would think it's a lot of times, at least from the health and wellness space, it's some type of illness or ailment or a family member that has something happen to them and it goes, whoa, I need to take care of my body. But what is it for like living a full life? It, it's pretty, it's it's tough because like you you've, I'm going to use, you've atrophied those muscles, that, that kind of like lifetime fulfillment muscles, then you strengthen these other ones, right? And so, you know, awareness is part of it, but like, you know, there's a lot of alcoholics or addicts that are aware and they're still addicts, right? Like, so there's kind of this repetitive thing to develop new habits, to make it harder for you to do the old habit and easier to develop the new one. So I think it's design. And so I, I, I always encourage my friends to design their lives for success. So like if you're doing X, Y, and Z and you're not like, well, they're like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, hire an assistant, have somebody ping you and give you a list of things and do it once a time. You know, I don't, I don't know. You know what I mean? I, I don't have a free time. I'm like, do, do X, Y, and Z. So I'm like, design your life for success. And so if success is like living a fulfilling life and you're, you're still like, you forgot about what it meant to have fun. You forgot how to socialize without going to work. If you forgot how to find a place to eat without it being close to work, those type of things was like, okay, we got a lot of designing to do, but we need to take the time and work on it. You know, it's not, it's, it's not going to just fall on you naturally. Like you think it is right. Like a golf swing is just not going to show up and you're going to have a perfect golf swing, right? It takes time, like a baseball swing or anything. And you, you didn't just all of a sudden wake up and like, I'm an expert and a master of the universe at this job or managing these people or whatever it is. And so things worth having or worth working for. And I'm like, let's work on it. Let's design it. Let's get off autopilot and let's, let's take it seriously because this is your life. I think a lot of people understand the concept of a bucket list pretty well. I think if you went to most people and you said, well, what's on your bucket list? Like when you do eventually stop working, they could probably list a bunch of things. And then your book is like the anti-bucket list. It's like, okay, 
don't do that later. Do that right now. Like, how do you build that? Yeah, it, it, the now is kind of like what you want to do is not as important as when you want to do it, right? Because if you tell me like, hey, I want to go hella skiing and, and you have it at 95, I'm just like, you're not going hella skiing. You know what I mean? And so the when is as important as the what. And so certain activities and experiences that you have, right, are optimal in a certain time period in your life. And they don't transfer easily to another time period of your life or they're less fulfilling. So either your yeah. attitude has changed, your willingness to do it, your ability to do it, all these things change. And so there's an optimal time. It's very easy to say like, I wanna read books to my kids. Well, you know, there's an optimal time, right? Everybody knows that time frame that when is that that's time to read to your kids. It's not saying you can't do it later. You may be able to, they won't be as enjoyable. They won't enjoy it. Or maybe they'll be like, get the hell out of here. Right. If you're like in your life, this part of your life experiences is that I want to read books to my kids 150 times, let's just say, so, or a lot, you know, that time frame is when they're little kids, right? I want to go to the club. I want to go dancing and whatever and, and glow sticks and, and, and rage. I mean, there's an optimal time for that. Depending on who you are, each person is going to have different optimal times for certain experiences. For me, wakeboarding days, the optimal time is past. And now I have to go to wake surfing because I can't handle the fall at the speed of a wakeboard. It's just mm -hmm. too hard on my body, right? Even though I'm in shape and yada, everybody's like, you look great, you look young. I'm like, I cannot take the muscle tears and heal, right? It's just not as enjoyable to me. So now I'm on wake surfing. Luckily I love wake surfing and hopefully those days will last longer. But putting those things into the appropriate time will prevent you from wasting your life and having this delusion that your life is gonna look like a carnival commercial when you're 66. You know, it's not. I lived in the Virgin Islands. We'd have three, four, five, six, seven cruise ships in at a time. I saw what the people did. They could barely get off the boat and walk around the shops right outside the boat. Be, and they were exhausted by the time they got back on the boat. You'd be surprised how many people get out, go swimming and die or have a heart attack or have some sort of medical emergency. They're just not used to it. They're not ready for it, you know? And and and, and they, they think like, oh, now I can finally go swimming with the dolphins and now you're gonna die. I mean, it's not like that for everybody, but I mean, it's just an example. And when I was, I said this before, when I was in St. Petersburg, it's beautiful. It's awesome. You walk around and one of the things, you know, in some of these cities in Russia and also in Eastern Europe, et cetera, is like, you could do things that they wouldn't let you do in the United States of America. You can walk up the steps and walk around the balcony, whatever, in the United States, be like, no way our insurance doesn't cover that, whatever. And, you know, there were like, I think 211 steps, might have been 111, but and you walk around the balcony, you know, the dome of the church, and you just see beautiful St. Petersburg. And they would all these buses coming up because the museum's right over there. And not a single one of those buses filled with, I would say, people my age now and older climb those steps. Not a single one of them. And so the value of St. Petersburg to them, even though it was valuable, I'm not saying don't take the trip. They didn't get the same value as me. They didn't get the same St. Petersburg as me. I got more St. Petersburg than them. And I'm not saying they didn't have fulfillment, but they would have, they got less fulfillment points in music than I did by doing it at the right time. And so I think about those things. I'm like, when is the best time for me to get the most out of this experience? And, and, and everyone should. I love that. And I was just on a three-week trip to Europe, and it was my first international trip and had finished the book and we had plans to go, but we were going to go and do it cheap. Like we were going to get there and like eat peanut butter sandwiches and everything. 
And we're like, you know what? How many times are we ever going to come here? This might be the only time we ever come here. My wife and I have been married two years. We don't have kids. And we decided to just actually pretend like it might be the last time we go there and do everything we would want to do and not worry so much about nickel and diming the trip. And it was like an experience of unlike any other experience before. We didn't go crazy. like We didn't just do stupid stuff, but it was like, okay, take a four-hour train ride to a neighboring city and then stay the night in that hotel instead of coming back same day to your Airbnb. We just looked at it completely differently. And that's saying a lot coming from me because I'm about as thrifty and frugal and as saver as you can possibly be. Right. Like you, you, well, one of the things I was saying, I said it before, is like you focused your attention from not wasting money to not wasting your life. Right. And so you're like, hey, I have X units of time here on earth and I am not going to waste those units of time. I'm going to get the maximum I can out of these out of the experiences we want to have and things we want to do. And so instead of having a fear of, of wasting money, you had a fear of wasting your life. And then on top of that, like you created experiences and you invested in experiences and they're paying you dividends. You're smiling when you're talking about that trip. You're getting endorphins. You're getting the rush. You're, you're reliving the moment. And so that experience is paying you dividends and you're like, I'm very happy I invested in that. I'm very happy I invested in my own life. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you see the switch and it's like, you didn't have to go crazy. You just had to be conscious, right? You had to be off autopilot of, I just save, I just save money. The number's going up in my bank account. You know, it's like you had to just get off autopilot and then you were like, oh, wow, now I'm having a richer, more fulfilling life, a, a, a deeper things to share with my wife and a connection and all the other things that are going on associated. And it helped me accomplish two things on the trip. Number one, I don't feel like we have to go back there. Like we did what we wanted to do when we wanted to do it. And now we can go explore somewhere else instead. But it also made me wonder, shoot, what did I do in my twenties when I was trying to climb the corporate ladder and trying to save and be, you know, put away 15 or 20% of my money and all of that. I was like, wait, what did I maybe miss? Because this experience in Norway changed me as a person. I see the world completely different. And it was just a short trip. What could I have done in my 20s with that type of experience? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I think when, you know, to each person, they're going to have their own optimal balance, right, of, of what experiences they want to have, depending on what they want to have in their life. But like, these things by living a full life and being true to, you know, your values and not being on autopilot, you don't go through a period of regret. And now you're kind of like, well, I have a little bit of regret about these periods, right? You have less regret, right? Because the book are, is their mental models and they're basically a counterfactual regret minimization algorithm for life fulfillment, right? For net fulfillment. So like, how do I get the most net fulfillment? And it runs this algorithm to make sure you have the least regret in the future. Mm -hmm. And that's what those mental models are. And so when you're not running that, you have the chance of having more regret. And, and what my book is for net fulfillment, like getting the most out of life. It's like net fulfillment over net worth. Like nobody gives a shit about you. Like, like you, you can work your ass off like a slave, but like if you didn't and, and, and pile and stack the cheese and have zeros in your bank account, but there's, if there's no purpose to that, right. Whether they be charitable or hedonistic, it's, it's just a waste. Who cares? doesn't matter. Yeah. You wrote in the book, they don't uh, carve your net worth into your tombstone. It's basically like what your experiences were. That's what's on there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like what makes you an interesting character or, or, or whatever, something to talk about is the experiences and the choices and decisions that you made while you were alive. 
the fact that you sold more plastic than anybody else and they gave you some paper and, and a plaque with a bunch of zeros on your bank account, it doesn't mean anything. It, you know, it's the velocity of money. Like they always measure the velocity of money, the health of economy, the velocity of money. But that, that's actually true at the individual level. The velocity of money that flows through you and out into the world as you exchange those dollars for experiences, whether it's the experience of, of uh, I don't know, having your teeth cleaned or flying on a plane or going on a train or whatever, that, that is going to be hyper-correlated with your, your fulfillment, your movement throughout this universe, right? Like your movement on planet Earth and the choices you make. And so for a given person with a given uh, kind of like attitude, aptitude, et cetera, that, that velocity is key. So if you don't feel like you have a lot of extra money, is your thought first is to optimize your income and, and your working ability first? Or what do you do if you aren't really making a lot of money, but you want to experience more? Well, the, the first thing I do is if you look at your life and the experiences, like the first thing I say is, no, let's look at the arc of your life and what do you want out of life, right? And a lot of that's going to be, you don't know, you discover. So there's a lot of that's potluck. Like you go to Norway, you're like, I love this food. I want more of this restaurant, right? And then that goes into your the future experiences that you want to have. But the first thing is like, what do I want out of life from here to the grave? And in and, and, and what period? This is a, an expanded bucket list. Not the like, I want to go jump out of airplanes, but this is like the normal things. Like I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want to go swimming a bunch of times. I like to do this. I want to learn, you know, I want to get more into my faith. I want to do this charitable activity, right? And in these periods. And then, then you can start solving for the money you need for these experiences, whether you need money or not, right? Some of those experiences are just like, I'd like to be closer to my grandmother. I want to go and walk to the park with her. So I'm going to choose that experience versus, I don't know, watching a football game or, or, or whatever it is. Just getting off autopilot and being intentional about intentional about what you want out of your life. Then you, once you've look, done some of that, you can look at your resources and be like, am I over-resourced? What do I want? Am I, am I like, do I need to expand this list, right? Do I need to give it away to charity because I'm not going to use it right now and make an impact on other people's lives? Or am I under-resourced? Like, hey, I got to get my shit together, right? Like I'm, I'm spending money on things that are not even on the list of the things I want and that's going out the door and it's depriving me of these future experiences or I'm not like, you know, trading in or I'm not being as productive as I need to be you know, bringing income in, right? And so it's really knowing yourself, knowing what type of journey you want to have to the grave and, and, and then finances come next, right? See, money is a tool to, to get what you want out of life, to fulfill you, not the other way around. So people are like, I just want a bunch of money and a number. I'm like, well, what's it for? Like, I, I'm okay with you. Whether it's, you know, a thousand or, or, or a billion, just tell me what it's for. Like, why are you working? Why do you want the money? Like, what do you, like, you say I'm saving. You're like, you're a notorious saver. I'm like, okay, what are you saving for? That's the issue for me. It was just to have more money in the bank. And it was like <laughs> a security blanket. Like, oh, maybe if I have 20, at first it was like, oh, once I have $20,000 in the bank, I'm going to feel really comfortable. Like, that's going to be hard for me to spend. And then it became more and then it became more. And it's like, okay. Clearly that's not working. That number always gets bigger as you have more money. So there has to be a different strategy. And in your book was the first time I've ever, and I know what Ryan Holiday and a lot of other people sort of talk about your death and like work, figuring out when that's going to be. But it was the first time I put down your book, went to my computer and I went on like four different actuary websites and started modeling 
my lifestyle and when I was going to die. And it wasn't from like a morbid way. It was like, I want to get the most out of my life as possible. How many years do I have? And then I can spread it out. Gratefully, one, I've had great genetics and I've had a lot of family members that have lived a long time, but my, the numbers that came back on average were 98 years. So I'm 34. I've got a lot of time left. <laughs> yeah, you're going you're to beat me by a lot. But, you know, the, the, it's, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's so morbid. Like I have the week sleep, your life left on chart on my wall now. And, I, and, and you know, I don't know my phone, but the wall, I think, is even more powerful. I'm going to live to 86 or 90 or whatever it's going to be. Uh, to me, it's liberating because like when you go on vacation, you know when it's going to end. And because the vacation ends, right? You, you treat the vacation as sacred. This is my vacation time. I'm going to go do this. And we're going to take this. Like you said, I took the train and we stayed overnight and we got the most out of our vacation. Well, you're on a vacation here on earth. It's going to come to an end. And knowing when it ends is going to force you to value your time here on earth. Not living like, oh, I'm going to live forever. Or this time, even, even at the, like the final death, but the fact that these time periods in your life die, like the, the single you dies, the married you without kids dies, the, 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 the first job you dies, the college student dies, and these periods die. And so knowing these little period, time periods in your life that they end, thinking about that end allows you to enjoy that period and take it seriously and get the most out of it, each time period, and then also the time period while you're here on this planet. Yeah, it, it's... A completely different way of thinking for me, and especially these other yous that are dying. That's pretty interesting, also, because you can look back and you can enjoy that period and you can pull the great memories from it, but you can't go back and live it again. No, it's gone. It's over. You, it's just what it could have should have if you didn't do your best. And so, like, I, somebody asked me, like, what are your regrets? And I'm like, every single regret I've had is tied to me not doing my best. Whether that be in a relationship, letting me getting angry and reacting out of anger or like not applying myself or et cetera. It's always tied to not doing my best. And it's some version of autopilot that kind of ruled the day. And then I'm like, why did I do that? You know what I mean? Like, why did I let myself get 20, 30 pounds overweight? Oh, I developed these habits and just kind of autopilot myself and math took over. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like, why did I yell at that person? Oh, like culture. And I just freaking autopilot yelled instead of really thinking about it and connecting with the person and solving the issue. So that's what happens to people. They autopilot and then they look at a period and they, they have regret. It seems to me like you've been putting a lot more focus on your health and wellness in the phase of your life that you're in. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, you know, I was building models about like, you know, net fulfillment and it's kind of like this product of your wealth, your health, and your time. And it's pretty obvious to know with zero health, everything is, 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 is food bar, right? You can, you can have zero money and actually have significant net fulfillment just by optimizing your experiences around things that are free and, you know, time bucketing, but you can't have anything with zero health and it, it's, it compounds. And so it's super important. It's amazing. Like the system of your body, this thing that kind of transports you through this universe is I call it the bio space suit that we have. That allows us to explore a world, move throughout the world and, and discover that, you know, it compounds and, and ruins your fulfillment in many activities in ways that are crazy. It just naturally from natural deterioration, right? Like I used to walk around seven miles, eight miles around Paris happily, no problem with a backpack. And now, you know, my knees hurt around four or five miles. So even though I could do eight miles, it's not enjoyable anymore. It's not a pleasurable experience. Four miles is. So I get less Paris now as an older guy. 
right? But when I'm out of shape, you know, and I'm actually forcing that deterioration on my knees because of the uh, repetitive stress on it and my back is hurting or like this past year when I would go to the beach and I was embarrassed to take my shirt off and like didn't go swimming with people. It's like, oh, I don't want to go in the water. Oh, I don't whatever. But really that was like my self-consciousness start seep in and, and the lack of pride. Now, maybe I could shift in my attitude about that, but it was a determining factor in like how much I got to enjoy that trip and things I didn't do because of my health, you know, the outward appearance of my health. And then also the, the other things. And so it, everybody can think of all kinds of experiences or, or the compounding effect of like not being in shape, not being party health, but it is, it is super important. And I like to also integrate experiences that also help my health or an experience and, and, and create dividends in the future, right? Like I get the memory dividend of an experience. So, so like hiking, like I love it. It's beautiful. You walk around, you connect with a friend that in itself is an experience. It's also making you healthier, you know, and and you get the memory dividend associated with, you know, recalling that hike. And so like, those are the things I'm, I've been paying attention to a lot. It's a lot more fun than just going on a treadmill by yourself in a gym when you've create some type of an experience of doing it with someone else. What was it like climbing Ajax? Oh uh, man. Well, when, when I, I did that when, when I was out of shape with David Goggins and why would you do that when you were out of shape? You knew that it would, that would kick your butt. I mean, I was just like, I thought I could walk up the hill, whatever. I was like, always, I, you know, I told him, I said, listen, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm there to relax. I'm not there to work. And he's like, okay, I'm gonna get up and do work early. So he gets up and runs a jillion miles, whatever he does. Then he comes back and he's like, we're going to hike Ajax. And like one fifth of the way out, like my heart feels like it's so tired. He's like, you could quit. And I'm like, there's no way I'm quitting. Would he really have let you quit? He's like, they were like, they, they looked at me and they had worried on my face. Like my heart rate was, I had a watch on my heart rate. I was like, no, I'm not off ramping. Like, cause I told him, I'm like, well, whatever. And he's like, come on. So he encouraged me up there. You know, Dave was like, doesn't even have like a half of a water bottle. He's like running up at the mountain, coming back down. Come on, Perkins, you can make, you know, coming. I'm waking up. I'm, I'm just step by step. And I, I know the road to success, right? The, the road to success is you can always take one small step. And then math and process just takes over, right? And so I one-stepped it all the way up the up Ajax, you know? And, and I, it was a great sense of accomplishment for me because it wasn't like, oh, I'm physically able, but it was a mental battle, right? It was a pure mental battle, you know? Uh, Have you found that type of mental attitude and endurance activities in the past? Or is that kind of your first dose of that where you where you know... Physically, you can do it, but it was the mental challenge that you were really in for. It's always a mental battle with me. Like, I'm so lazy. I'm like, and so, you know, while getting in shape, you know, I designed everything around me to be easy so I would have no excuses to, to do it. And like what? Because I, I, I'm a lazy guy, too. And so I want to I want to hear from you. Like, what, yeah, like, what well, made so it I, easier? I have a Peloton in my house. The stuff stays in my house. So I don't ever have like, oh, traffic. Oh, it's raining. Oh, it's whatever. Like the thing is right there. You know what I mean? The trainer sends me in a WhatsApp, do this workout at this time in 20 minutes. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, you're doing this. I'm told what to do. Now my integrity's on the line. You know, it's right there. I have no excuse. There's all kinds of hours. I can always, and it's like, oh, you can always do a 20 minute Tabata. Tabatas are tough. And so, and then I'm like, oh, I'm tired. Maybe my arm's a little sore. I'm like, no, you're not injured. So I have this whole mental battle in my head about like, take a break. You don't need to, whatever. It's all just excuses, right? And then finally, at some point, sometimes it's sooner than later. It's just like, it doesn't really matter what you think. It's either done or not done. So get up and do it. And I'm just like, I got to do it. 
right? So like motivation is like, I know that like motivation is great and it can help you, but I just try and eliminate motivation. It's just, it's just like, it needs to be done or not done and you can do it. Because motivation isn't going to be there every day. There's going to be days where it's gone. And when there's no motivation, you still have to get it done or you're going to just fall off. Right. And so that's when you want to make it easy for you to do it. Like the ability is really easy. If it was like super low motivation day and I got to drive 20 minutes in traffic in the rain to a place, I might not, you know what I mean? But like when it's right there in the bedroom <laughs> staring at you and you, you've eliminated all those excuses because you're low motivation. And now it's just like, it's done or not done. I like telling myself, it doesn't matter what you think. Like your thoughts, your opinion about it, whether you want to do it or not, doesn't effing matter. It must be done. Because it's so easy to come up with an excuse of why you shouldn't get on that bike. I mean, it's like you when you're when you want to snooze, there's a million reasons to stay in that bed. Oh my God. And, and then you start making it, oh, my knees are kind of hurting. Well, I don't want to overtrain. You know, like you kind of ate just, a little like, bit too much last night. Like, and like, I was you know, a sports doctor, like, I don't want to overtrain. Like, yeah, whatever. You know, and, and I have. I, I like to say I have more angles than a protractor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like to come up with not ringing out. But you know what I've done when I'm not on autopilot and conscious and realizing this about myself as I designed for success. And and did you do that in your career also? It like was the laziness that you feel you have for physical training was did that show up in your work in any way? I think when I was younger and I was less mature, it definitely showed up. But I think it was kind of like, oh, physical things or whatever. I would like got went into mental things, you know, work smarter. So I don't have to do these things. But I think I, I took a, a boot camp class with BJ Fogg. He's a speaker. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He does. He did the Tiny Habits book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he runs a behavior design. And it was like, it was one of the best things I've ever done on that. And realized how much it's designed. It's not like you being lazy or about you being lazy or whatever. It's like, let's just design for success. You're human. Let's just design. You know, you don't want to be on your phone all night, stick it in the bathroom. Small change in difficulty, big change in results, right? I'm not on the, you know what I mean? Like it's there. If it rings and there's an emergency, I can still get to it. But I'm not getting out of my bed to go on the cold floor to get the phone to goof off and play chess or whatever it is late night, you know. You wouldn't believe I, I have my Wi-Fi shut off at 9 p.m. and it doesn't turn back on until 9 a.m. I don't scroll on social media because for me to do it, it would require me somehow turning the Wi-Fi back on. And I'm not going to do that. I'm too lazy to do that. So I just won't bother scrolling. But that's great. That's great behavior design, right? Like you design for the behavior you want. And so that's kind of what I did with working out. That's what I do in the relationship, you know, things like that is like I design effective prompts. You know, those are reminders, like internal reminders are kind of horrible. Like, call grandma. Yeah, call this, call grandma. Shit, I forgot to call grandma, right? Like, you use a prompt on your phone. Google, set an alarm at 7 p.m., call grandma. Or, you know, I have an alarm that goes off at 7 p.m. every every night. Pay attention to fiance. Give her quality time, right? Like, I look like the greatest lover ever. No, I have effective prompts and design to do the thing that I want to do. So I'm designing for success in my relationship. I design for success with the working out. You design for it. And, and everybody can design for success with these small things like designing prompts and making things that you don't want to happen harder and things that you do want to happen easier that propel you towards your goal. That's sort of what we did when we were first starting to get healthy, my wife and I, and I signed up for a marathon and I knew I wasn't gonna be able to do it unless I fixed my diet. 
So we just stopped buying stuff that wasn't going to be good. Like I stopped buying things of Oreos. I stopped buying things of Pringles and I stopped buying Ruffles, sour cream and cheddar chips. And instead I didn't just eliminate them. I replaced them with other stuff that I liked equally as well. And then that just desire for those other things just went away eventually. Yeah, it's just not, it's just not easy. Like if the Oreos were right next to you, you just go in a jar and you grab it. And you know, like behavior is a function, a convergence of like your motivation, uh, ability to do it and the prompt, right? Well, if it's there, there's a, that's an automatic prompt, right? It, and then it's easy that it's very easy to do. And then you mo- you're always going to be hungry. Like the motivation is going to go up and down and you're going to grab the cookie. But if it's like, I do want the cookie, but it's 3.5 miles away in the store and I don't have it here. And the prompt is missing, like eat the cookie because it's got the blue bag and it's designed to make you want to eat it. Like, so the prompt is gone. No behavior happens without a prompt. And so unless you have an internal prompt, you got an internal prompt, but it's not easy to do. You have to drive to the store and you don't have the motivation because you want to drive the marathon. So like you just completely designed correctly for what you needed is, was this to like get your health, your, your diet, your weight or whatever in shape uh, for this marathon. And what was great was once feeling better, there was no interest in those things anymore. Like I haven't had an Oreo and actually I swung so far the other way to where I wouldn't eat anything bad ever. And I kind of needed to find a middle ground. And I had a friend of mine that said, James, you just need to eat the pizza once in a while. You can't just like not eat when you're with your friends because it's not what you prepared at home. Like sometimes you do just have to eat the pizza. Yeah, yeah. Like you, you. That's when you make conscious choices. Like, do I want to experience this or not experience this? And versus like, I've, I've inadvertently designed my life for like chaos and, and bad health, et cetera, right? Like you'd be like, okay, now I've designed this way, but like, let, let me not autopilot the whole thing. Let me figure out like, when is the time to celebrate and have a pizza? It's worth the calories. Because it's sometimes you don't want to be uninvited to the oyster roast because your friends don't think you're going to want to eat that either. Like, I, I didn't want that in my life. And, and that's where it was getting to. Yeah, I mean, you just you can you can, you know, design puts you on this kind of like autopilot for success in one area. But like, you know, these autopilots are good to your life. Like you cannot consciously think of every single thing going on in your life. I can't be like. 3.5 millimeters circular cylinder doorknob. Like the brain just automa- autopilots. It's a door. Open the door. You know what I mean? Like you have these categories so you can move through life. And so you could design these things to be successful. And then, you know, you get out of the default mode network and get to your prefrontal cortex, actually conscious and be like, oh, but what do I really want? What do I want to do? So, you know, it's great to have these designs, but you want to revisit them and come out of it and be like, okay, what is the higher priority? What experiences do I want to have right now? That's such a great point. I've always kind of taken autopilot to mean I was doing habits that were bad for me, but autopilot could also mean I'm still doing things that may no longer serve me at the current time. Correct. That's exactly. It could be just a new autopilot. It just looks a little better. Yes. Like so. Like autopilot. Like I'm glad you said that because like what you're saying on autopilot, it's not always bad. Like when you got on autopilot at work to make the cheese, like that was a great autopilot. Like you made the cheese, but the problem is, is that the cheese is for something else. You know what I mean? Like you gotta, you gotta stop and, and, and be like, okay, this doesn't serve me anymore. This, or at this rate or this ratio, it's not serving me. So we have all these autopilots that are good, that allow us to navigate this complex world and handle it else your head would explode. Right? Like if you had to think, the way you thought when you first started to learn how to drive, you go crazy. 
right? Like, it's like, oh my gosh, Charlie, you know, you're like, did I step on the grass? And you thought about every action you were doing, right? And then now after learning how to drive, you're just like, whatever. You don't even like, how do I get to a house? I already turn left. Oh, there's a stop sign. And then whatever. And now you can drive home from the location almost unconsciously, right? Like it's this routine running in your head how to get there, right? You auto stop at the stoplight and do auto signal and auto, well, the good drivers do, auto signal to develop the habits, et cetera. And so that's a pretty good autopilot. That's a great autopilot. And so, so you just kind of have to like step off autopilot and see, you know, is this serving me? What is my goal? What do I want out of life? So have you developed regular inspection points where you go back and like kind of review what you're doing and not doing? Yeah. And now I'm actually trying to develop more. Like I have a, I had a check-in and I need to have another check-in with a friend where we were just, okay, what are our KPIs that we're going to have for our fulfillment, like for our spend? So I, I check in, I have kind of this broad thing. I, my, my CFO, I go, well, how much money did I make this past year? Give me a number. And I'm like, well, how much have I donated to charity so far? And they'll give me a number. And I'm like, oh, we're under charity. You know what I mean? Because I have a goal of how much I want to give to charity each year as a percentage of my income. I'm like, let's go. Dave Thomas Foundation, DePelchin, Adoption Services, let's fire, fire, fire. And I allocate money to them and some other charities. And then I'm like, okay, I have a couple other things where, you know, school and other, other charities or how much, and then I'll ask, like, how much have I spent on travel? Just as a broad indicator, you know, if I haven't spent X on travel, I'm, I know I'm doing life wrong, right? It's a KPI. It's a KPI for net fulfillment, you know? And I, I, I ask people that, like, what are your KPIs for your net fulfillment? How many trips have I done with Lara? How many times have we gone out of town? How many times have we gone to dinner? How many times have I given her gifts or said, I love you or whatever? You know what I mean? Like it, it's, there's no shame in having KPIs for your net fulfillment. And if you don't, you're kind of a stone idiot. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, if you have a job and you're like, I got all these KPIs and I know the ratios and, and, and how many sales calls I made or whatever. And you're like, I'm a model, but you have none of that for your net fulfillment. You're kind of a stone idiot. And I'm saying that affectionately. I call my friends stone idiots all the time when they're not really paying attention to the life. Cause that's the most important thing. Like this is, this is it, man. This is it. One ride. This is all you get this time period. That's it. And it is gone. And so for this time period in your life, the things you want, what are the KPIs that tell you that you're on track, that you're actually getting what you want out of it? Those are great. Yeah. Did you do KPIs for work, for your, for your health and fitness and other buckets too? Yeah. I mean, like it's, they're there. Right. And so, but for me, it was more like my net fulfillment. Like what are you, so it forces me to sit down with a friend and be like, okay, these are the things I'm interested in right now. These are the things I'm doing. Okay. Well, you said this, but you're only spending this much money on this and all the money on that. And it seems kind of out of whack, you know, and then I can go, yes, that's the way it should be. And I just didn't realize it or no, let me rejigger shit. You know what I mean? Let me do some things. So what are those things right now that you're interested in? I heard you mention chess. Are you playing chess? Yeah, yeah, chess. I'm like, well, I realized like, like most people, I, I, this was just a kind of a, like a broad theory. I think as human beings, we're addicted to solving puzzles. You know, it could be the work puzzle, it could be the relationship puzzle, it could be whatever, but we're just addicted to puzzles. We're just like puzzle solvers. Like, oh, I'm gonna figure it out, right? And that's why like, you know, Wordle is great. You know, it took off like wildfire. It's like, oh, I could puzzle and share my journey. And so I have a sense of community of solving puzzles, right? So two things that human beings love is connection and solving puzzles and they stick it together in Wordle. And it's like, you know? <laughs> and so I get addicted to playing speed chess at night Two one sometimes. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I played I played probably two three thousand two one games in the last two years, and then I was like, okay, if I want to get better at chess, 
it's like the habit, like, okay, two one's fun, but two one's not getting me better. And so I had to quit two one, but two one's so much fun because it's over. There's no, if you do bad, it's over really quick. If you do great, it's like, oh, I, I'm so great, you know? Yeah. yeah. It is a lot of fun. But uh, I don't know what the question was. Yeah. Have I been playing? I'm just curious what you're interested in right now. Like, what are you, what are you trying to get more of in your life? I'm I'm trying to like, like I have daughters. I'm trying to guide them and and maintain a connection with them as they are teenagers. And they're like, F you dad, we want to hang out with our friends. You know, that period in their life. Right. And I'm getting married in July. So I really want to have a bang up time and celebrate that moment and have a great summer. And I'm developing like what hobbies and interests I want to have and later in my life. I've discovered wake surf and I love that. I want to support my fiance and everything she's doing. We we decided we want to open a vegan lounge club restaurant in Austin. I'm kind of developing the things and discovery. Like I'm really into this rediscovery of who I am and what I want to do. And so, you know, I, I love travel. Love meeting new cultures and, and and understanding it. And I think that's one of the things that like you spend money on, but you come away richer, like just really enriched. And I love learning um, just new things. I go down rabbit holes. Like I'm the guy that like when the article comes out and it's like kind of like the Mick article, but it's got the hyperlinks. Like I'm in the rabbit hole at the NIH, at the, you know, Fizzorg website. And then I'm like emailing the researcher, you know, like. That photonic measurement device you did, like, you know, like that, that type of thing, you know, I'm that guy. And so I'm just trying to figure out, like, how do I address, like, my creative streak, the hobbies I want to do that are kind of physical, the, the learnings I want to learn about, and, and other things like that. When, when you have that tendency to go deep in the rabbit hole, how do you turn that off when it's kind of like a you got to make a choice quick. Like instead of sometimes it's like, oh, I need to make a choice right now. I don't have three weeks to get become an expert in this area before I make a decision. Well, I mean, I'm lucky. Like I'm able to tra- like one of the things you do is like, you know, your efforts are transferable. Like that's great about capitalism and the economy. You become an expert at like, I don't know, waste disposal and you make a bunch of money. And then like, if you want to learn about something, you can get a team and do research. So you can get to a point where it's like, okay, I've allocated all the resources that of my personal time, the tip of sphere, but I can now go hire an expert or have my staff or somebody go research it for me and bring it to me. And usually it's just, you know, there's 24 hours a day. I should be sleeping seven hours and 20 minutes when I, but you know, as you get older, it's harder to get those seven hours and 20 minutes, maybe eight, you know, the, the other things will prompt you that this is time. Like it's time for you to stop. My alarm goes off at seven. It's Lara time. You know, it's time to go pick up your daughter and drive her to school. It's time to do X, Y, and Z. So the world will prompt me for to stop and if it at that point i can make a value play is like this is more valuable than the next thing i was going to do or not yeah so it sounds like you built a lot of intuition of what you want to do and not want to do so where you you can say yes right away possibly if it's something that's interesting to you yeah yeah and you know you never get it perfect right it's just awareness drives you closer to perfection or at least less waste. And so, you know, I can go into a certain hobby and like, really, I'm like, oh, I want to explore the artistic side. I want to learn about art. I want to do this art thing right now, or I want to do X, Y, and Z, or I want to do this charitable thing. And I really want to focus on enabling these people to do the charitable thing that they're doing. Right. And so I'm allocating a certain portion as everybody does to discovery. You know what I mean? It's not just robot. You don't know what you want. You discover what you want. And so 
there's this, there's a lot of discovery in there that I have to make sure that I have room for discovery. Have you thought I you mentioned in the book flying, like you had an interest in maybe flying planes. Have you ever considered getting into that and doing it again? Pilot? I mean, I took lessons. I've soloed. I I've done. You soloed. Yeah, I soloed. I used to solo and do touch and goes around the airport. You didn't, but you didn't finish. No. So I, I was having a daughter at the time and I used to read the accident reports for private flights and at jet travel, you're as safe as a car. We're safer, right? You know, licensed pilots, but at the private aviation, it's about riding a motorcycle. And so I used to read the accident reports and it was like pilot error. Didn't check the pito tube, flow in the weather, did whatever. Like it's like pilot error, pilot error, pilot error. And I used to be like, I would never do that. And then one day I realized no, I'm actually the guy to do that. I am that guy. The million things going on in his head, distracted guy that would like nine times out of nine, 99 times out of 100, it wouldn't make a difference. But then one time it was a disaster. And I remember one time I was doing touch and goes in a Cessna 172R at Sugarland. And there's this telephone pole wire at the end of the runway that you need to, you have to clear. And when you land a Cessna and you kind of like, they, they have, they're notorious when you come down any kind of way, except as smooth as possible, the front wheel will shimmy, shake, you know, I don't, I don't know, pilot. And, and I landed and had a lot of shimmy, whereas like, it was late to giving power. And I, and at the, I was like, do I, do I try and jam it and clear this or not? And at the last second at sea runway, I powered it, did it off the runway, but like, I don't think I would have cleared it, but I was like a nanosecond away from. I'm going to try and go for it and potentially clipping that and dying. You know what I mean? Cartwheeling and dying or clipping it and whatever. Like in a Cessna, if you clip a wire, it's not like the wire breaks and you survive. You're just, you know, it's a, it's a disaster. And the instructor's like, you made the right decision. And I was just like, I could have easily made the wrong decision. And I was having a baby and I was like, I don't, you know, the same thing with my motorcycle. I got rid of my motorcycle. I was like, for me deciding about risk reward for myself, this is okay. Me deciding about risk reward for a family unit, this is not okay. And so I stopped. Yeah. So I'm, I am in flight school right now. I'm pre-solo. I will probably solo in the next week or two. And my instructor's wife listens to the show. So when she hears this, she probably knows how I'm doing better than I'm doing. I'm sure he tells her. But I, what you're saying, is it makes a lot of sense to me. As far as val- the equations of risk and, and weighing the risks of of, of flying small planes. Yeah. Everything's risk reward, right? I mean, I used to love riding a motorcycle, but I'm like, I don't have the right to take the risk for Sky Perkins at the time who was born. Now I have two daughters, right? I don't get, I have to think of a of, of broader risk bucket, right? Like the risk of her not having a dad, like me dying, I'm having fun, you know, but now I have, I'm responsible for another human being and not just financially, but emotionally and having a dad around. And so that went into my risk reward equation and it just became unbalanced. And so, yeah. So I, I just don't get to take those one in 10,000 over your risks as much as I used to. I mean, it really has to be a huge reward for me to take that risk. That makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate that you were able to change paths on something you wanted to do and not finish. Because to me, it's like, oh, you were you were basically there. Like You probably could have finished in two weeks. Yeah, yeah. I was soloing. I was going out in the field and practicing. You, you'll have a practice field where you can fly around in G airspace and goof off and you know, practice all your things and your power on stalls and your power off stalls, like whatever, you know, and no, I had to cut it. I had to cut it. 
But I'm a risk reward guy. Like I'm, I'm not like, hey, you know, you shouldn't do that. That's risky. I'm like, if it's rewarding enough to you and it's worth the risk, everybody makes their own risk reward decisions, you know? And so as long as you're conscious about it, then it's fine, you know? So I, I am curious, changing gears completely. You mentioned some prompts that you set up to be a, uh, a great fiance. What about being a great friend? Because I think it requires just as much deliberate measure to be a good friend in, in today's world. What have you designed for that? Yeah, I think, I think one of the main things I've done is realizing my limit. There's a theory of the Dunbar limit of the number of meaningful social relationships you can have before all relationships start to suffer. And that, that's been the hardest because I'm like, I don't know, quasi public figure out there. People want to connect, people reach out. I'm like, I, I can't do this. Like I have X amount of time. And if I keep adding people or can I have five minutes of your time, can I have this? I'm like, no, you cannot because I need to be available and I need to keep my neurons and brains and thought patterns on these things. Because if you shift them all, you shift any of them, you shift it all. And then my other friends, my close friends suffer, right? So in order to be a good friend and have a quality relationship with these friends, I, I protect my time judiciously. You know, and so I think to a third party observer, it's kind of like, oh, the guy, he's so whatever, he doesn't get back to me. Well, how could he not have 15 minutes or five minutes for my thing or stop out, have a coffee or whatever? And I'm like, no, dude, coffee with you is like, you know what I mean? Jams everything up and I can't deal with these. And so that's one of the main things I've done. And I make, I make sure, you know, I protect that time. And then I also like half a life is showing up. So my friends have an event a wedding, a life event or something or a problem, I show up, you know, I don't get it. I might not get the other half of life right, but I get the half of showing up. And so that's the thing, you know, and they get me, they get the unfiltered me. Like, you know, I, sometimes when I go talk to people, I say, listen, Hey, I'm going to talk to you guys. Like I'm your best friend. Is that okay? And they go, okay. Because like, I don't pull punches. Like you don't get value out of Bill Perkins. If I'm just like, Oh yeah, I agree with you. Oh, I don't want to offend you. Whatever. You get value out of me when I'm like, dude, you're an idiot. Like pop, 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 you know? And they get the full value because I'm a mirror for them, right? Like if you had a mirror and it didn't reflect you properly, it's a shitty mirror, right? It's like, you don't need it. And so I think if you're a friend and you're not really reflecting properly, helping hold them accountable to their best selves, that's really not that valuable. So that's also how I've become a good friend to show up and give them the vulnerability and authentic Phil Perkins. And you mentioned the Dunbar principle. I think that's, you correct me if I'm wrong, you've got this 12 people in your inner circle and you've got a maximum of like 150 kind of loose connections. Anything over that is just too many for your tribe. Like you can't handle it. So like for you, for like close friends, how many people is that? It, I think it's sub 12. You know, it may be, I think it's 12 to 20. I think every number is there. And the, I, I know my loose connections is, is, is much lower than 150. Like I, and I also have like, you know, some people are like two standard deviations good at remembering people's faces and names. I'm like two standard deviations the other way. And it's like really bad. It's terrible. I, I, I like had my brain scan one time because I was like, shit, you know, doc. And it was like, no, whatever it is, you don't, you know what I mean? You can remember a number or a trade or a thing, but you, you have this, you know, and it takes like an extreme amount of effort to try and remember a, a person's name, you know? Just matter, right? I don't know what it is. It's like, and it's like, I got to care enough about this person to remember their name. I think you subconsciously just know you're probably not going to see them ever again. Maybe, maybe you're just not a descriptors, but whatever it is, it's like my number is lower than 150. It's definitely lower than 150. 
it's really stressful because people's names are important. Who they are is important. And I don't want to say that they're less important. It's just like, I just don't have room for it in my head and heart to keep everybody in my lifeboat. You know what I mean? Like this is, do your friends do the the same for you? Will they call you out? Like, have you have you given them the permission to? Yeah, to yeah, call yeah. They you do. Out? I mean, like, they don't they don't hold punches. Like the people, and that's one of the things I like about the friends who are, you know are very close to me now or in my orbit. That you know they're gonna call it like you you see it like like one of one of my best friends. People who come see us like fight like cats and dogs all the time. <laughs> like you know what I mean? And it's like wait, you guys. You guys are like besties. You guys are really best friends. Like I'll call it like it is. And so, but you know, we love each other. We we want each other to be their best self. Like we might have versions of that. We may disagree with versions of how to be that and thus conflict, but you're getting max value, I think. Right. How, how do you build that? I feel I'm in process of trying to build like a mastermind group with some friends I trust and then meet regularly and then talk about our goals and then and basically, I need more accountability to stop making excuses, and I need friends in my life to call me out when, I, when I'm saying an excuse, like, oh, I can't do that. I want them to be like, James, yes, you can. You just are choosing not to. Like, how do you develop that, like, that honesty with your friends? I think everything, like I say, like, it's risk-reward and take as much risk as possible. And that's not just financial risk. Everybody thinks it's always financial risk. It's also emotional risk. Like, be vulnerable. Go first. Say, I love you first. Say, I need you in my life first. Say, I need this to be vulnerable, you know? Tell a story that's like very vulnerable. Like, this is why I need you, you know what I mean? And I'd like you to be in my life. And I'd like you to be a part of it. And I'm probably going to crumple up the first time you give it to me. I'm going to get defensive, but keep coming. And invite that. And then people were, I think, you know, the, the people that are worth having their response to that, you know? But like, I think it's vulnerability. You know what I mean? Like, you're going to have to get vulnerable. Right. If you come in, you have your face on, you change your voice tone and I've got my shit together all the time and blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, you'll be surface friends and acquaintance and, you know, everything's hunky dory. But like, if you're vulnerable, like, oh, this sucks. And I really need, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I don't want to hear a, a cheerleading thing. I want to like your, your, how you see it. Give me the real deal. Cause I can't get value from sugarcoating it or whatever. Then I think you give people permission to be in your life when you open up the kimono, you know? I think probably I am afraid of, of, of someone telling me something I don't want to hear and then it hurting my feelings. I think I'm not as tough as I pretend. No, no, sure. no, no, no. I, listen, I'm just as afraid as you are. It's just, you know, I realize like you get one life and courage is the way, you know, and you just go. It's kind of like, it reminds me of when, you know, a long time ago when I was first starting and moved out of my parents' house and I was working at Best Buy and I was a manager and moving up the ladder and I was like afraid to check my bank account because I was like, oh, I hope I have enough money to pay my bills. So I wouldn't check the bank account, Yeah, which is like the complete opposite of what you should be doing. It's like when you're trying to lose weight and you are too afraid to step on the scale yeah. each week. Yeah. It's like, yeah. okay, you're actually, you're going to hurt yourself more if you do that. I was, I was joking with a friend. I was like, listen, we all have that junky emotional garage or whatever it is in our life where there's stuff in there and there's cat shit in the corner of the garage and you don't even want to shine a flashlight on it because you don't even want to clean up the cat shit. <laughs> you're just kind of leave it there and you're just like, don't look at it, right? Like we all have that, right? And so like, I got it just as much as the next person. And you, know, you, you unpack that stuff with your friends and they're like, I see the cat shit, dude. You're going to have to clean that up, you know, in your garage, you know? That's where that smell is coming from, you know? And that's why I was joking. And I, move the boxes and move this crap and all the stuff you protected to cover it up 
And like, we're going to have to go deal with this. And so we all got that, you know, there's, there's no shame in that. The, the, the key is, is that, are you going to break down the walls and be like, you go, if you want a friend like that, you have to be a friend. You have to show yourself because you have to be vulnerable because they can't be friends with your walls, right? They can be friends with your robot self, your, your, your mask, right? Like if you want to be a friend to you, you is behind the wall, you know? So you're going to have to like crack open that door a little, let them in and help you tear down these walls. It's another autopilot. It's just a self-preservation autopilot that is probably from when I was eight years old or something. Yeah, and but it's... I mean, it, it also like you need to operate in a world that, that moves on similarity and conformity, et cetera. And sometimes it, it helps you. Like you, you wear the same clothes, you wear the culture, the clothes of your culture or whatever the subculture is. And you do the thing and say the, you say the, the pleasantries and you say the pleasantries back, right? And you have these routines, right? That you have that help you navigate the world and they serve a purpose. But like at certain point for certain relationships or some of your goals, it doesn't serve a purpose, right? Like we don't go meet people who like, wow, man, I really have a problem with anger and, and going from one to 10. You don't lead with that, right? Like it doesn't serve you well, but like when you're trying to have deep relationships, et cetera, you're gonna have to crack open the kimono a little bit, you know? That makes sense. Yeah, you don't just go around with a shirt that says like, oh, I need anger help. Like I'm looking for friends yeah, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or I need this or whatever. Please tell me, you know, be my shrink, you know, and then they're not supposed to be a shrink. They're supposed to just help you and hold the mirror to help you see. What about bringing your friends along on the ride for experiences? Like, actually, I, I posted on Twitter that you were going to come on the show, and I asked for uh, listener questions. And uh, a listener named Nemo asked if you will elevate others around you to achieve these experiences, or is it really lonely when you're trying to do it? Well, no, I mean, like, I, I this is funny because I, I've, I've said this before, like other friends, I'm like, listen, when you get to a certain part in life, right? Like you can go, I don't know, fly off to Paris or whatever and afford this or whatever, right? And then you have friends that don't have the resources you have to do that. And I'm like, listen, you either need to scholarship your friends, pay for them or get new friends. Right. I like my friends. So I scholarship them. I bring them with me. Right. Like that is part of it for me. Like I've gone to the movies alone, but maybe once or twice. That's it in my entire 53 years on this planet. Yes. I at my house. I can watch them, but I'm going to the movies alone once or twice. Right. I could go on a trip or alone or whatever, but like, and it's, it is, there's something about doing it on your loan to know that you could do it and be along with your thoughts, but like it is so much more enjoyable sharing life with somebody you love or appreciate right and so that is part of the trip and so i bring my friends i scholarship my friends right they come with me they're along for the ride and that's it's it's, it's like what do you want like what experience do you want like do i want to go on a yacht in the mediterranean by myself and it's just me on a big yacht <laughs> you know or do i want to be with my friends and loved ones and hanging out and sharing experiences and doing things and taking them to wonderful places and experience them and then coming back and talking about it. I like the, I like the latter. So they come with me. That's what I want out of life, you know? And that's why I made the money in order to do things like that. It would be nice if they had their own money and they could do it, but that's what I want out of life. And that's, I'm going to curate those experiences. Right. And so the answer to the question is, is yeah, my, I, I, I don't know if I'm elevating them, but I'm bringing them along for the ride when I can. And it's interesting because you mentioned, you could get new friends who could, but, or you could just bring your friends you have with you. And 
there's a point where you have to decide one or the other. And there's, I think what you're saying is there's a lot of value to the people that you've been with for a, a while. Is, is that true? Yeah. I mean, if you look at it this way, it's like the experiences I have are not contingent that I want to have with my friends was not contingent on the ability, their ability to pay. Right. Some of them may be like, if we can't afford it or whatever, but it's like, these are my friends. Like I didn't, didn't have like an, I didn't have like an economics test to, to please give me your credit application to see if you can be my friend. Right. What is your future value of your net worth going to be? Hmm. Seems like we won't be friends in 2022 because I'll be here and you'll be here and I'll be doing these things and you can't afford them. Peace out. So we got five years. Like it didn't go that way. Right. It's like, you're my friend. I want to, I want to do life with you. Right. I want you to be a part of my life. Right. And these things are part of my life. And so to the extent where it's a friend's thing and they can't pay or they can't do it or whatever, like I will bring them along. You know what I mean? I will, I will be like, I get it. Like they can't, they can't afford it. You know, they can't do it. And sometimes it's like a bit in relationships or people like, what, what are you doing? And you know, they're with me. I'm like, listen, you know, they, they, they're not as, as, they're not as wealthy as me. And like, I've had a long time to adapt to that, right? Like I have a long, like my career went on a rocket ship at 25, right? Like, and so I've been used to it and I adapt to it. And I said, hey, listen, like they, they felt weird about paying for their friends or giving them money and for the work they were going to miss, right? Because it's not even just can they afford the trip, they can't even afford the trip, but they can't even afford to miss the, a week at the being a waitress or whatever it is. And I'm like, listen, what do you want more? your sense of like what's fair or what people should pay or do you want your friend on a trip if you want your friend on a trip pay up the money that they're going to miss on the thing and bring the friend on a trip you know and i i've had time to wrestle with that and 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 think about it but like people on different paths and different journeys and if you want them to jump off your path and come with you you know you, you if it costs money if you can solve that problem with money those are the best problems to have i love that you bring others with you and that you didn't choose your friends based on being in similar positions as you. And I just feel like that means your friends are your legitimate friends. It's not like you guys are just hanging out, doing these things together because that's what people are supposed to do in your circle. You're, you're just hanging out with the people you like to hang out with. Yeah. And, and people have different, like, I wouldn't want to hang out with a bunch of me's. I didn't you know I mean like I got, I got enough of me like I don't I don't need a bunch of me's like there's some similarities and it's great but like all walks of life and all journeys and then like these journeys throughout life they have value and they have their own thing like it's it's okay you know there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that like you don't have to be an, in, an engineer of so-and-so commodity trader blah 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 an exact carbon copy of me in this economic strata I uh, it, I will say it makes it harder to make new friends, like the, the one thing, anybody with any kind of uh, success in, in any, in, in any way, but particularly I think financially or, or any kind of fame is that you're hyper-conscious of why people are approaching you and why I try to be friends because you're just so used to people trying to leverage you, you know, which I'm so okay. Like I, when, when I, like people have asked me, can you, can you mentor me or whatever? And it's like, I don't have the time, but even when I was like, Consider it as like, I want to give you value. And if I can't properly give you value, I don't want to be there. It's just going to cause friction. Like, I want to give you value. I want to be outward focused on my friendships and my relationships. 
So I get it. Like I, I naturally want to give people value in, in the relationship, et cetera. But when you get rich, you're always like paranoid, like, oh, are they here for my money? You know what I mean? Are they here for the fame? You know, that's, that's why famous people hang out with famous people and rich people hang out with rich people. I don't care. I got my own fame. I got my own money. You know what I mean? And there's a comfort in that, right? It's like, okay, great. We can actually be friends. Yeah, they're not afraid of hiding what's in their garage because this person's at the same level where if if it it's less scary potentially there's less risk in that you almost. just you just feel you you just have this kind of like it's authentic right like if i'm if i if i'm friends with let's see bill gates i'm not but if i'm friends with bill gates i know he's not being friends with me for my money <laughs> you know what i mean like he's not after trying to leverage me for my cash right there's just like that security you're just secure in knowing that right and that's why these guys kind of click together as they eliminate this whole like you're trying to leverage me or my thing or whatever you know we can just talk about the things that we have in common or diverse views etc and, and and provide value to each other in different ways you know hold each other accountable and it's sad in a way because there's a lot of wonderful people in the world interesting dynamic people of different economic strata and that, and that being a barrier, it just, it's just an extra steps to become friends that way. It just takes a lot, a couple extra steps. What's interesting is with you traveling a lot, you meet people in airports and in cities that have no idea who you are, have no idea what your success level is. You just have a backpack on and a backwards hat. Yeah. And awesome. you know, they actually are interested in you for you. Yeah. And it, it's so awesome. Like, I, and, and the funny thing is, is that I was at one point, you know, we had this experiment. A friend of mine is like, what's more powerful, fame or money? And he ran the experiment to figure it out. It, it, particularly with girls, but just in general. And it was like, oh, fame is way, 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 way more powerful with girls than money. Like it's not even close. It's like 50 to 150. It's, it's, it's silly. How did he run the experiment? He got real famous. Was always rich and got real famous. Right. So did he regret becoming famous? Uh, Dan, yeah, he does. And it's a thing. And so at the time, I was on the belief like, Oh, you'd always trade all your money for fame because you can always make more money with fame and you can monetize the fame and yada, 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 right? If you could be at a certain level of fame. And then I saw up close and personal what it does. And I was like, you cannot pay me to be that famous now because it robs you. I was like, we are literally robbed of the whole world. Of all the things I like to do, you're robbed. You can't enjoy them. You can't go anywhere and you have to be in a bubble. You go to a dinner, like we'd be out in this town in Europe and it's like, oh, it's a cool area with docks and these bars. But I can't go in there. Look at all those people, man. I'm going to get mobbed. There's going to be too many pictures, whatever. You may have a dinner conversation like, yeah, when my dad died, I really regret not like being close with him and talking to like your mid-sentence, like, can I get a picture? And yada, yada, like it's just constant harassment. And, and it's not like at the individual level, they're being harassing. They're, they just think it's 30 seconds, just a one picture, just one picture. You know, the rainstorm is only a bunch of one drops. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a freaking monsoon, but it's really just a bunch of one drops. And that's what fame does. It, it monsoons you at everything, every sunny day, every walk here, every kind of thing that you do just gets shit on. And then the, your, your world, instead of expanding like I thought it would do, it actually shrinks and becomes a prison. And I was like, no, Z level fame is the way to be, <laughs> you know, like you want to be Z famous, not, not a famous. You want to be Z. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, when I worked at Best Buy, I did some installations with the geek squad 
and went to a guy's house. And it was a nice house, and there was a Bentley in the driveway, and we got to talking. And he shared with me, he's like, yeah, I sold my company uh, a couple of years ago for $350 million. And he's like, and I got another one I'm equal, equal size that I'm still working at. And when he came into the Best Buy store, most of the employees actually thought he was like homeless. Like I went up to him just because I love people and I was just talking with him and then ended up you know, selling him all this stuff. But he was anonymous, but rich. He could do anything he wanted still, I'm sure, without, without anyone knowing who he was and still just walk down the street in any city and, and live. Which yeah, it's, it's great. And you get to meet people and hang and it's authentic and they don't know who you are. And, I mean, it's not that New York, it's just like you can, you can interact and have authentic experiences free from being molested by the crowd and also free to like not have them polarized by your fame because fame it, it's it it does something to people's brain right we're herd animals right we imprint we, we were designed like that we come from animals like so there's nothing you could do about it and they're paralyzed by it like they don't know how to react to you you know you're just like ah you know and so so it's like you get to have authentic experiences and you get to not be molested. You get to explore your world. You get super famous. You can't explore your world. You can't have, it's very hard to have authentic experiences. You have to hang out with other famous people. They're like, great. We're not impressed by each other's fame. We can now have an authentic relationship, you know? Yeah, we, we removed the BS part of it and can now be honest with each other. And we don't have to have our guard up because I think that that's where, like you said, it makes a lot of sense about my friendships if my guard's up and I'm not being vulnerable, I'm not going to get vulnerability and honesty back either. Like so, someone has to go first. It should be me because I'm the one here saying I want friendships like that. Yeah. And, 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 and you're not taking the risk. Like it's all risk reward. There's no risk, no reward. So you've got this wall. So be friends with your walls. I'll be friends with your wall. Well, like whatever. Like it's, yeah, there's some walls that look real nice. You yeah, know, they're, they're, very, they're, they're a little more very brief. nice. They got their shit together. Always the perfect and blah, 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 you know? Yeah, the walls in St. Petersburg are beautiful, yeah. and and climbing a thousand steps up is is beautiful, and that's great. But what's inside is what's really interesting. And before I let you go, I am curious from your book. And this whole time we've been talking about your book, Die with Zero, and it really changed my mindset. And there's a lot more in this book that we didn't discuss. We kind of talked about experiences and dividends from your experiences and, and me talking about my vacation and how much joy I've already gotten from that in one week talking about it. And I get, I don't know, 50 plus more years of remembering that. But the, the one thing that I thought would be extremely helpful to talk a tiny bit more about, stopping using time to get money and actually using money to get time. Yeah. And I think your example in the book was like, okay, you're cleaning the house. You don't like cleaning the house. What could you do with that two hours if you gave someone else a job to clean your house? Like, what are some other ways maybe that you can do that to actually buy more time so then you can go experience things? Yeah, so so that that is like one of the things like is kind of, especially with my wealthy friends. But even even when I was younger, like even when I was just like, oh, okay, I, I there's this book called Your Money, Your Life. It was foundational to my thinking and it, it goes through this whole exercise. It's very didactic. It's very painful, but it goes through this whole thing. Like every single dollar that comes into your life net divided by the total hours required to work, including transportation time, et cetera, and the expenses. And you come out with like your true hourly wage. Your true, what's an hour of your time worth, right? 
let's just make the math simple. Let's say it's worth $10, right? So then it's like, okay, can I pay somebody 250 to do something what I do and save time? Or, you know what I mean? Like, do I value that shirt at 20 bucks? Would I really pay, would I really do two hours of time to do that? So you convert it first to your true hourly wage and then you thought of everything in time, right? So, and then it's like, okay, this is an hour of my time to clean the house or it's 15 minutes of my time to do it. And then you start to figure out like, where do I allocate my time? Where, where is it best spent as opposed to dollars and this kind of abstract notion of dollars, right? Like when you're at the casino, one of the best things they do, it's not the odds of the 0.1% edge they have in blackjack or whatever. That's not the best thing to do. The best thing they do is take your money and give you chips and turn it into an abstraction. And so when you're gambling, it's, it's just these chips. It's just a red chip. It's just a blue chip. It's just chips. It doesn't rip. It's like you can't even connect it. To the second, the first abstraction, which is money, right? Money is just an abstraction of your time, right? It's like you exchange hours of your life for this thing called money, dollars, yeah, and whatever, wherever currency you're in. And so they, that abstraction disconnects you from everything, right? So people are flipping and, you know, spending their time and like, wow, I just spent a week's worth of my life in this club. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but they didn't. It was money. It was an abstraction. It wasn't a week of their life. Right. And like the same thing, it's like, why am I spending an hour, you know, like cleaning up this house, whatever, when I can be doing this other thing with my time that I really enjoy. And so you get to prioritize your things and like exchange your time. It's like one hour of my life is worth, you know, five hours of the mate's time. Like, why am I doing this? Like I can give them money and, and go do something else. And so in business terms, it's effective allocation of resources. Are you the best person to be cleaning your house? So why are you doing it? You know what I mean? Like, if, and you know, I, I, with my, my other friends, you know, I really put it kind of bluntly and I like to go, so what you're trying to tell me is that you're so unproductive that an extra hour of your time doesn't yield more than seven fifty or $10 or $20. And of course, these are people who are making 5,000 or $10,000 an hour, right? Like, so like, it's clearly I'm being an asshole, right? Like, I'm like, Oh, so you feel that driving around and running around getting groceries, like that's the most productive use of your time, right? Like that's why you went to Stanford. Like that, you know what I mean? Like, you know, so like, I'm like hammering the point, right? Like this is an ineffective allocation of resources, right? Like you should be doing the tip of the spear of things that you're good at that produce the most capital. And you should let the people who are good at what they're doing and choosing to do that, do that, not be trying to rob the maid out of a job or the grocery delivery person out of a job or whatever. That's such a hard thing. Like for me, what got me to be successful is owning it all and doing everything and doing it my own way. How do you start to hand? Habit and autopilot. You started a habit, habit, autopilot and bullshit culture. Right? It's like, oh, you gotta do it yourself. You're, you're the guy, I, I can clean this myself. Like, it's not that you can, it's should you be doing it, right? It's not you can, like it's not, effective, right? Like, like the, the, the CEO of IBM is not like, you have to, people ask me questions like, how much does this cost? Whatever. I'm like, I don't know, dude, I run a family office. I have a staff that does that. Like, do you ask the CEO, like who does this? Like, he doesn't know, like he's running an organization. He's focused on the things that he should be focused on. And everybody else is focused on the other things you're doing. And that's how you should be running your life. If you really want to get ahead and hit a home run, like if you want to have a big business or whatever, you got to work on your business, not in your business. Like, 
That's the difference between Joe's Pizza Parlor, where it's just the mom and pop shop, or Pizza Hut, is that mentality, right? And there's nothing wrong with being Joe's Pizza Parlor, right? If you want to be the guy who makes the pizza, counts the change, sweeps the floors, and that brings you joy, and that's what you do, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But if you want to be Pizza Hut, you can't be doing that shit. And people are basically in their lives using that same example, like they're just basically want to be Joe's Pizza of their life. I want to do the laundry and I want to do the X, Y, Z, whatever. I'm like, there's only so many hours in a day and you cannot be productive enough to take it to the next level if you're doing all this other bullshit. I think that's the issue is that stuff may feel meaningless and not like it's a, like there's not a lot of time there, but you only get so many productive hours in a day to actually be creative. It, you may have 24 hours, but for me, it feels like after three or four hours, my brain's gone. I can't work much longer than on anything creative. And so doing that other stuff takes that three or four hours. It might actually make it two hours. Well, if I was your best friend, I'd be like, well, how do you know? Have you run the experiment? No, because I'm okay, lazy. So then shut up until you run the experiment. That's how I would say if we were best friends. You know what I mean? Like, I'd be like, I don't hear your bullshit until you run the experiment. Over time. So how, do you run the, how would I run an experiment? You would pay that? somebody else to do the shit that you're talking about to give you three hours a day or two hours a day and then go be like research the thing or do whatever or work on the other project or have another idea or have daydream time to the schematic or work on your new business plan or do whatever or work with your life coach or your therapist for your relationship. And you schedule those three hours and you tell me, okay, is this setup the better or is the one where you were doing all the other shit better? And I, the answer is the answer is usually probably obvious at that point. I'm, I'm just saying, like I don't know. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bias the bet, but I'm just gonna say or the experiment. I just I'm just saying, like you know, don't don't come to me with what you think. Like why guess when you can know? That's a great point. I know one thing I do know is I waste a lot of time each day. I don't. You need downtime, and then, like if you gotta like hustle and do laundry and do all these other things or whatever, you need downtime. You use the downtime. You put in these efforts, and that's like. Your brain cycles, like it uses you up, you know? You're stressed out, like, oh, I gotta run over here and fit the laundry to whatever you run over here. Do I'm, I'm, I'm like, like these things, people need downtime and they need uptime and they have X, Y, and Z and they, and they and they condition themselves to be a certain way. So you haven't even had enough time to condition yourselves with the extra two hours a day. Let's say, let's just say it was two hours in this thought experiment. You know, like, okay, Schedule a therapist on this day, a life coach here, work on this thing, work on your manuscript, work on your new podcast, hire a video editor so you're not doing it. Let's, what are you going to do with those productive hours? And if the answer is like, you give me three extra productive hours a day, I can't do shit with it. Okay. Do laundry. I don't care. <laughs> which which I, I don't believe that if someone was given two or three extra hours and they were completely clear that they could pick up a book and read a book. They could listen to a podcast. They could take a walk. They could take a nap. There's endless things they could replace that with that would be more productive than- or more rich and uh, more fulfilling, right? Like, I don't know if you read an extra, I don't know, 20 books a year. I, I think you, you get a lot of value and a lot of leverage out of that. You know what I mean? Like, if you were able to go down a rabbit hole about some business idea that you've been thinking about, but you never had the time, I'd, I'd, I'd bet on you. You know, I bet on human creativity and ingenuity. So it's like, but you design your life to, you know, run errands and you think that's best. And I can't say shit about that. Like I can have an opinion, but like, if that's best, then that's best. I can only say, Hey, run the experiment and come back. Like, you know, if you, if we were knew each other, we were buds, I'd be like, I will bet you all the money in the world you're wrong and you got a design wrong. Like just, you're just full of shit, but I don't know you. Maybe that is the best thing for you. Maybe that gives you peace of mind. Maybe that's 
exactly who you should be and how you should be doing it. I think a lot of, well, at least the excuse that a lot of people would present for outsourcing tasks is, well, who am I going to find? And what happens when they don't show up? And what if they don't do a very good job? Sounds like me in the morning when it's time to get on the Peloton. Exactly. It sounds like me. I mean, I've had that, right? I've been there. You, you know, I've, I've got, I got a thousand. Like, I am just as guilty of everything. I wrote this book for me to get off autopilot. A lot of people think I'm the guru and I'm the book. No, dude, just as whatever as the next guy. But you know, a lot of people avoid pain to live in misery, and so they don't want to go to the pain of taking the step of doing X, Y, and Z, and they live in misery. And that's true in relationships. They don't want to avoid, they avoid the pain of a breakup. So they'll live in misery together. That's true. in like making the change of like, oh, wow, I gotta go. it's a pain in the ass to go find somebody to do this stuff. So I'll live miserably and do the shit myself and not be productive and pursue my dreams. Right. And so I try, I tell people a lot of times, like, don't avoid pain to live in misery. And what did it feel like when you got to the top of Ajax after going through all that pain and misery? After going through the pain to not like, I mean, it felt great. I mean, it it just felt like I proved to myself that mentally I can face the battle. Like when your chest is hurting and whatever, it validated the one step at a time. People climb mountains one step at a time. When you look at the top of Ajax, you're like, and all the way up there, like, you know, you, your brain is just shouting at you because you're tired and it's whatever. And you can go home and you can hang out and have a nice hot chocolate. And you know what I mean? Like chill on the couch, it's bullshit, you're sweaty. But you take the steps up there and it's beautiful along the way. And you just have this, I can do everything. And you feel emboldened that, okay, when I wrestle that, those voices in my head and I tell them to shut up, uh, you know, you can accomplish, you can accomplish seemingly impossible tasks. I don't want to say great things because it's not that great to climb Ajax, but it's seeming for me an impossible task. One step at a time. One and step at a time. That's all time. it takes. One step at a time. And you can apply that in so many different areas. And I'm so grateful you came to chat about your book. I loved your book. I know it's going to change me. It already has. And I'll, I'll continue to share what I've learned from this. And I'm looking forward to your next book. But I am curious before I let you go, if someone's interested in our conversation, they want to learn more about you or support what you've got going on, where where should they find you? Like, what do you got going on that we can support you with? Oh, man, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at BP22. But there's a lot of hot takes and bullshit on there. But if you want the, the thoughts of a madman, you can follow me there. And that's kind of like the space where I'll actually occasionally engage with people. You know, I'll, I'll I, like this is the format where hot topic of the day or random thought of the day where I'll I'll actually, you know, engage with people. And then I'm on Instagram, I'm Bill Perkins, but that's just kind of like my diary of my life. It used to be this curated thing to try and attract hot chicks and and, and be famous. But then I was just like, I'm going to film shit and have the memory did them later. And it's like less polished and less whatever. It's just my life. And one day when I can't move, I'm just going to look back on those videos and stories and be like, oh, that was nice. You know what I mean? And just just soak it up, right? Actually, I do now. I, I do it now. So uh, those are the two spaces where you can find me out there in the Twitter streets and on Instagram. And what's next for you? What are we? What's coming out, or what? What are you working on that where you can look forward to? I mean, the biggest. Uh, whoa, you mean like as a product to give? I have two startups. I, I mean, the, the the biggest besides my wedding. Let's just say in the business world, like in the social, I have two startups. One's called Sin. It's value added data. They have a project Dia, which is working on a a big giant data fusion project to track dark ships. That's its like lead project. So stopping illegal fishing, transit shipments, uh, sanctions, violation, pollution, whatever. It's this big giant 
massive honking project to take in multi, multiple data sources and run this fusion project to, to solve like a problem where 90% of the world's value, you know, commerce is, is, is waterborne, is on the ocean. And so there's just this huge, huge, huge thing going on there, you know, implications. And then there's this, the, the democratization of earth observation data, satellite data, this company called SkyFi, where you'll be able to go on your phone and task a satellite like you were James Bond whether it be optical, synthetic aperture, radar, or hyperspectral. And I, I really believe that, you, you know, the internet democratized access to information with the help of Google, et cetera. And that led to an explosion of, of good things. And I think the next layer is up earth observation data. And if I make that easily accessible to everybody, the geniuses of the world, the crowd, right, will do things like Stop, but you know, predict mudslides before they happen and help with illegal fishing and pollution and greenhouse gases and bridge before they collapse with synthetic aperture radar and tracking wildlife species that are endangered. And so many things I can't even think of the use cases. Like so many use cases, my brain's not big enough to think of the use cases. Like people are like, what are the use cases? I'm like, well, what were the use cases for the internet? You're not smart enough to figure out them all, right? I'm not smart enough to think about all the use cases for the democratization of earth observation data, but I want to be the step or the tip of the spear to bring it to everybody to affect massive change in our world, like doing real shit. And so I'm super excited about that. And that's skyfi.com. 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 I'm, I'm trying to hire people who are out there in, in entrepreneur land, like we're all fighting for talent. Right. Because everybody's working on interesting problems and we're like, hey, come work for me. I'm solving this thing. And hey, come work for me. And it, it's great because it means even though I didn't get to hire the person, they're going to work on some interesting problem that will, in theory, make my life better and the world better. And so in some way, but skyfi.com, you know, we need developers and, and a UX, a UX lead and, you know, we need people. So check it out. Skyfi.com. Okay, that's great. And I've got some, some folks that might be good fits for some of that. So I'll take a look at what you got and, and maybe send some folks over to your team as well, because that is neat. And, you know, there is a lot of things that people can be doing. There's a lot of opportunities. Work from home. Everybody can work from home now, basically. And and so it is really things that people can go after their interests and their experiences and what's going to bring them joy in their work and outside of work. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, one of the greatest pay raises that ever was was the work from home right? You get the transportation hours back. It is just massive uh, pay raise in terms of like, and when I think of pay raise, it's like hours of your life. You just got these hours of your life back. And now you can show up at your kid's game or you can roll out of bed and be at work. You can, you know what I mean? Like you can actually meet your neighbors and like know your neighborhood and do lunch with your neighbors and actually learn how to socialize without having to go into an office. It's just such a huge benefit. I'm such a big fan of it. It was funny when I left Best Buy and left the corporate world and I thought all these people I spent a decade with were my good friends and then hadn't really seen many of them anymore. It, it was like they were my friends, but they weren't. We were just working side by side. And you don't realize that until you leave sometimes and they, you're not talking to them anymore. And so that's what's cool about work from home is you can choose who is your friend now, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, you actually develop other muscles like your social skills. Work becomes like you're just so dependent on it for all your life. Not only the money to have your food and shelter or whatever, but who you meet, who you date, who you socialize with, who you eat, who you joke with. It's like, oh, and so that's what happens with people. They did this for 40 years and they retire and they're like, I don't know what to do because they, they've habituated themselves and been totally dependent on the office, you know? 
And now the pandemic, one of the bright sides that came out of it is this work from home thing. People now are like exercising that other social muscle. Like, let me go meet my neighbors. Let me go eat at other places. Let me go walk for my lunchtime around my neighborhood. Let me do X, Y, and Z. And then now they're more prepared for the next phase of their life because they're exercising these other muscles and they're more in touch with the one. They're more in touch with their families, et cetera. Like the quality of life is just astounding how much it goes up when you work from home. Hybrid work from home, hybrid or work from home, right? You know? My last thought on that is, and, and then I'll let you go, is that it's a perfect time to go through the exercise in your book of mapping out five to 10 year chunks and then putting the bucket list items in the appropriate area. And now that you have more flexibility with your work, you can more easily have more than just two weeks of those types of pleasures. And Correct. Life, which is you, so cool. Every day. I worked in my office, was commuting an hour each way every day. I remember my mom used to do that too. You know what I mean? And then imagine getting 10 hours a week back. It's just incredible. Like you're never making your kids game after school right away. You're never getting to pick them up after school. You're never, like all those moments that go in that time bucket, you're, you're missing out on. And now all of a sudden, poof, they're back. You get them, you know? I mean, we're switching to uh, like hybrid Friday off or whatever, but like the pandemic kind of like forced everybody to put in the systems and and protocols and everything to make it work and everybody to adapt right away. And I, I think that was a huge benefit. You know, everybody had to adapt and figure out how to make it work. And, you know, it may not be optimal for every scenario. Like sometimes you got to come in and bump into the people to have the friction and talk or whatever, but finding that new balance is great. A great, I'm a big quality of life guy. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, that we got forced to, to accelerate that. See, there's always some positives in, in everything. And I'm so grateful you came on the show and shared. And I'll make sure in the show notes that we link to your book and to your companies and the other things that you're working on. But just really grateful for you and, and the message you're sharing. Thanks for listening to this episode of The James Quandall Show. The show notes for this episode and other goodies can be found at quandall.com. Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on the next episode. Subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show grow. See you next time.